and open them to the book of James. Uh, This morning we're going to continue that portion of the book where James begins to incite and encourage us with prayer. And so if you would, out of honor and respect for the Lord and His precious Word, would you stand with me? And let's ask for the Lord's blessing as we read and then preach His Word. Let's pray together. And blessed God, we come to You for light and understanding, for wisdom, Lord, knowledge. Lord, we come to You as children in need of guidance from a Father, an all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful Father. And we pray, O Lord, that You would take this Word this morning and You would light up our path, You would guide our feet, that You would fill our hearts with its truth, that You would give us a desire, a hunger for it, as as a newborn babe desires the milk Lord, give us a thirst for Your Word. And we pray, O Lord, that the fruit of our time together under Your precious Word would be that of, Lord, deepening our affections for You, for one another, for the kingdom of light and glory. O Lord, we pray that we would be sanctified by this Word. Cleanse us. Make us whole and complete. Show us, Lord, where we are wrong and where we have erred and we will repent. Lord, give us all the grace we need, Lord, to respond as children to their Father. And we will be happy. We will be happy, O Lord, to be under Your guiding and teaching hand. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Now, beloved, I want to read verse 16, 17, and 18. Hear now the word of the living God. James chapter 5. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. And thus ends the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. Now, it's probably all obvious to all of us that this portion of the book of James, as like other portions of the book, is there to encourage us to pray. Not to just pray those things that we commonly pray for, but to pray for common things and extraordinary things. That we ought to be men and women, we ought to be a church that prays. Now James uses the last bit of this section to motivate us to pray by teaching us that righteous people have their prayers answered. That's what James is saying right there at the end of verse 16. I've already dealt with the first part of it several weeks ago and now I want to address what he says about this effectual prayer. He says the uh, Effectual prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. 
Now this praying and this means of grace is not to be separate from faith. Saving faith. Now, I guess let's take a step back and think about it like this. All kinds of people pray. All kinds of people pray. And rightly so. I mean, the wicked pray. The ungodly pray. I mean, a lot of people pray. And you cannot, you cannot not acknowledge the fact that men who are made in the image of God by God's natural law, has this earnest desire to call upon the one who created them, even though they do so with impure and wicked thoughts and hearts. And their prayers don't do anything. More than just excite themselves. Oftentimes, prayer is attempted and done for the fact of personal enjoyment or that personal elation that comes because we prayed. But without ever considering our own condition, without ever examining our own faith, without ever putting into mind and heart whether or not we're right with God. It's often, I mean, it has been said, and I know it's been said, I mean, even among ourselves, sometimes we feel like the prayers don't rise any higher than the ceiling. They seem cold. They seem more like a lecture. Not passionate. Not fervent. They're not personal. They seem like they're more from memory than the heart. Almost as if it's a, a duty that I, we go through that we do it only because we're supposed to, not really because we want to. Well, this portion of the Word of God is to help us with that. Here, James is motivating us to examine these words and to give them thought and to help us see how prayer is this perfect complement and grace to faith. All along the way, James has explained and exposited to us saving faith. This is what faith looks like. When you read the book of James, you don't get life from heaven's perspective. You get life from the ground, boots on the ground. This is what life looks like when it's being buffeted and afflicted. When, when the saint of God is under trial and hardship, this is the response of saving faith. Or it should be. It should be. But when we hear the truth, what does saving faith do when it hears the Word of God rightly explained? It conforms to it. It wants to obey it. Because the same God that gifted His elect with this saving faith also gifts them with the preciousness of His Word. And then He gifts them with the Spirit who comes with power to give them understanding concerning the Word. And then He gives to the saint all these beautiful and glorious means by which we are to facilitate our saving faith. And that's where prayer comes in. That we would enhance and, and strengthen. And if you will, let me use this word. 
That we would beautify our faith with prayer. James wants to encourage us to pray, but not just pray. Anybody can just pray. And I guess let me address the the comeback to some things I just said about God hearing prayer. I mean, does God hear everything? Well, He doesn't have a hearing problem. But when we talk about God hearing prayer in this context, we're talking about a God receiving prayer and acting on that prayer. We're talking about a God who calls Himself a Father to His children and comes to want to hear their voice call and petition Him for aid and and, 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 and in a time of need. And He gets to exercise His power and authority by granting to them their prayers. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I mean. I'm not... God hears all prayers, but God doesn't respond to all prayers. If we look at these verses, we can see, I think, a pretty clear outline of the text. There are really only two points to make. And the first one is this. Who can offer effectual prayers? Who can offer what we call those true, effectual, working, powerful prayers? prayers. Well, what does the text say? What does the Word of God say? Not Pastor Stanfield, but what does the Word say? The prayer of a what? Righteous man. A righteous man. So that's the first point. It should motivate us and excite us to consider our righteousness. Now the second point is certainly attached to that, and that is that these effectual prayers are illustrated or at least explained through the life of Elijah. And I will say certainly more about that as we go along. Let me just go back to our first point and make a few comments about the text itself and then we're going to get into some doctrine. First of all, let's, let's examine this idea of righteousness, or at least righteous men. Now, though the text doesn't mention women, I think we all can read the text profitably and understand that God is not just speaking to the men of the congregation. God is speaking to everyone. This is a term that's used to include all of humanity. The prayers of a righteous man as the prayers of a righteous woman avails much in God's kingdom. And we're going to look at what this righteousness looks like so that we're not confused. But that is this. As the text demonstrates, certainly the context of it is the as this talks about this healing prayer where the one who is suffering calls upon the elders of the church and they come and they lay hands and anoint that sick person for the healing of their body. And if there is sin to be confessed, what do they do? They confess sin. If they need to confess with another brother or sister or someone they've sinned against, what should they do? 
They should go confess their sins to that person. It's in this context that James says, listen, you want in your congregation righteous saints, righteous people, righteous men and women, so that when they beseech the gates of heaven with their prayers, our Heavenly Father stands waiting. You know what the picture is? And and this 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 is not necessarily... Uh, becoming of a great and glorious God, but you know God leans over what you want. How can I answer your prayer? Now, I don't want any of us to confuse this, this, this desire of God to answer the prayers of His saints with this, this gumby, pliable, vending machine God in the sky that all we've got to do is toss a little obedience and get something in prayer. That's not the God we're talking about. See, that God doesn't exist. That's blasphemous. That's blasphemous. That's, 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 that's bringing a stain to God's name. But that God is interested in your prayers. And He is interested in how we live our lives by faith. So He says here, He says, listen, it's the prayers of a righteous man that availeth much, or that works much is more the idea there. And notice the text itself. Where does he go to illustrate this? Well, he goes to Elijah. Now, Elijah was a very special man. Like many of the Old Testament prophets, he was given an office. He was a prophet. He was given authority. What was his authority to do? His authority was to to aid and to build up the church of Jesus Christ, the, the nation of Israel. He was to go teach them the Word of God. And if they strayed from the Word of God, he was to go as God's mouthpiece and call the saints back, call these Hebrew believers back to God, back to covenant. And he was given authority over nature itself. We know that Elijah raised the dead. We know that he called fire down from heaven. We know that he prayed from the text itself that it would not rain, that it would dry up, that the earth in the, it would dry up for three and a half years and yield no rain from heaven whatsoever, creating famine and drought. Why was Elijah given these special powers? And and why is it fair for James to use Elijah when we could not do any of those things today? Well, we don't need to do those particular things. Elijah's already done them. And we're not living in the days of Elijah. We're not living in the dispensation of Israel. And so we need to consider what the text is saying and how that applies to us today. But let's think about this. Elijah uses all of these things to do one thing. What is your very first catechism question, shorter catechism question? You know it? You remember it? What's the chief end of man? Someone tell me. What's the chief end of man? Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Elijah was glorifying God. When Elijah raised the dead in the widow's house, he was glorifying God. He wasn't for himself. He wouldn't do that to say, look at me, let me start a TV ministry. Let me travel the world in a big old fine jet. Let me fill my, my bank account with a whole bunch of money. He didn't want all that. He wanted the name of his God to be hallowed in a land that was filled with idolatry. 
See, God's covenant people wanted the gods of their day. Yeah. They wanted the gods of their day. What are you talking about? The spirit of the age was paganism, worship of other gods. Yeah, let's take our God. Let's keep our God. But let's implement some of these other things. You know what? I think these are cool. I like the way they do this. Disregarding and ignoring what God had particularly told them to do. Elijah was trying to call them back. Who's God here? I mean, that's what he was... When when Elijah called down fire from heaven, what was he saying? Who's God here? Hmm? Scream, holler, cut yourself, maim yourselves, do whatever you need to do, cry all day and night for a thousand years, and there will be no fire from heaven because your God does not exist. My God does. That's what Elijah was doing. In fact, I think we can safely say that in one sense, yes, Elijah wanted to do it. Elijah was filled with the glory and honor and reverence of God and he wanted the nation of Israel to follow along with him. But you know what? He did also didn't, at the same time didn't want to do it. I'm tired of preaching these messages, man. It makes everybody mad. Lord, everybody's mad at me. I go and I call them back to repentance. I mean, I tell them about a gracious God that will forgive their sins. I tell them about a God that takes their sins and washes them white as snow. And I tell them about this God. I tell them that He's provided a way for them to live in abundant of blessing. And they're mad at me about it. They don't want it. They don't want it. They want the gods of the day. They want the candy. They want all of the carnival lights like Pinocchio. And they want what they want. Lord, why? Hey, it's similar to Isaiah. Right? Isaiah, what did he say? You know, the prophets had a great... The prophets knew how to complain to God. They would go to God and complain as a Lord, you gave us such a glorious message. You've given us such a, a wonderful Savior. You've given us such a clear path to take. Lord, nobody wants to hear it. And Isaiah complains to God. And he says, Lord, who's believed our report? Who's believed it? I'm preaching the Word. Nobody wants to hear it. So Elijah was this man who was... Yes, had a particular special office, but beloved, look what the text says. Verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. What does that mean? What is James teaching us? Well, James is teaching us that Elijah was not a special man. He was a man just like you. Filled with all kinds of anxiety and fears and longings and wants and everything else that that we want and are filled with and, and, and struggle with and hope for and all these things. But nevertheless, this righteousness that, that James is talking about, beloved, and I need to bring this point to a close, but this righteousness is not super uber righteousness. It's, it's, it's the righteousness that, that comes through saving faith in Christ whereby we have been cleansed of our sins. See, I don't even say where we've confessed our sins. We need to confess our sins. But you know what? You confessing your sins and my, me confessing my sins don't cleanse my heart. Jesus cleansed the heart. 
I can't scrub my heart. You can't scrub your heart. We can confess our sins and that is a sign and a reality, hopefully, that who's cleansed our heart? Jesus has. The book of Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and goats couldn't cleanse the conscience, but the blood of the Lamb comes to wipe our sins away. That's who Elijah was. He was a man that had faith in the gospel. He was a man that had been cleansed by God. He was a man that was being obedient to the commission to be a prophet, an officer in the, in the nation of Israel, church. To go and do some things that he really didn't really want to do. Lord, you really want me to do this? I don't really want to, but I will because I love you. And I want people to know you. And I'm heartbroken of what I see. I'm heartbroken that your people have turned their back on you. Now, he's a man like we are. You, you go, you, he was a man that walked with God. I mean, if you go to, the, say, Genesis chapter 6, and I'm going to just I'm gonna tell you about it so we can move forward. Noah's described as a righteous man. And it says that he walked with God. Again, Noah wasn't super uber righteous. He wasn't in any way somehow supernaturally gifted above us in the sense of, of having a righteousness about himself that was not human. But how was Noah righteous in his day? Just like Elijah was righteous in his day. Just like Elijah. Did Elijah go worship the pagan gods? Did Elijah go worship on the hills? Did he worship the Asherosh poles? Did he worship the gods of Baal? Did he worship Molech? No. He remained faithful to his God, worshiping God as God had dictated and prescribed for him to worship. And he used the means of grace by which God had granted to him so that he might be faithful and righteous and walk with his God. All right, how did Noah do it? Noah did it by what? Not, doing, not going along with the people. I mean, you think the church is in bad shape now? It was in bad shape in Noah's day. Eight members. We're, look, we're almost there. That was a funny But that was the whole church, not just the congregation. The whole church, eight people. How was Noah righteous in God's sight walking with God? By exercising his faith in the means of grace by which God had granted to him so that he would keep himself separate from the world, longing for him. See, the righteous longs for God's deliverance. He doesn't try to facilitate it. She doesn't try to facilitate it. He says, Lord, I'll give me patience. Give me long-suffering. Lord, i wait upon thy mighty hand. And Noah preached for 125 years. That's a long time. Now, the church never grew. He started with eight, and he ended with eight. But you know what? That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You know why it doesn't matter? Because he walked with God. That's what matters. The ma what matters is what we do. We walk with God by faith that we take and utilize these things. He had a nature like ours. Notice how Elijah prayed. 
It says that he had a nature like ours and that he prayed earnestly that it would not rain or fervently. Now, how does a righteous man pray when something's on his heart? With passion. Fervor. Constancy. You know, I read stuff like this and I ask myself, have I ever been that passionate about something? See, the text is telling us Elijah didn't just get up and say, Now, O God, withhold the rain. Dry everything up. And it did that. That's not the picture here. The picture is that Elijah beseeched the gates of heaven constantly by saying, Lord, withhold the rain, withhold the rain. Lord, they're worshiping the God of the rain. Hold it, hold it, hold it. Lord, they're worshiping the God of the harvest. Lord, they're calling upon the God of the harvest and the fertility gods to come and and bless the earth with rain. They are going to ascribe your rain to the idolatry of these idols and false worship. Lord, withhold the rain. Let them know that only you are God. Let them know. Because I'm going to tell them. I'm going to tell them who's withholding the rain. And he prayed fervently. And God, for his glory, and for the behalf of the church, the testimony of God's people who said, there is but one living and true God. God says, I'm going to withhold it for your benefit. Think about that. I'm going to answer Elijah's prayers so that the church can say there is only one true and living God because of this righteous man's prayers for the whole nation of Israel. Amen. He prayed fervently. And then thirdly, when we think about Elijah, what do we see? We see the blessing. The blessing. Look at what it says there in verse 18. It says, And he prayed, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its what? Fruit. What do you think went lacking in the land in those dry years? Fruit. Food. Produce. Was scarce. You would have to send the merchants to the, to the foreign lands, if you will, to bring food back in order to sustain yourselves. And yet, what was the benefit of Elijah calling forth for rain and says, Now, Lord, now bless your name and bless your people. Rain happened and the fruit was produced. That's a beautiful picture. It was a beautiful picture. Well, let's... Let's talk about this effectual prayer and this doctrine. As I said earlier, it's not just praying, but it's the praying the right prayer and in the right manner. That's what we're looking for. Now, I know you can maybe want to bristle up a little bit and say, well, I mean, I think God's just happy with my praying. Well, God's happy with the praying that He prescribes us to pray. I mean, we need to get our minds straight here that God's just not sitting back passive in, well, His world. God knows what's best. He's infinitely wise. And what has God done? God has prescribed everything for our happiness. Everything. He says, you want to be happy? I'll give you the the path to it. This is the prescription. Take the prescription and guess what? You will glorify me and you will be happy. You will enjoy me forever. So we're talking about this 
prayer being offered up in the right heart and in the right manner so that it's effectual. That is, that means that it produces the right results or the fruit. A lot of things to say here, but just notice a couple of them. I want to read to you what one theologian said about prayer. And again, the context is this. The context is not everything that you pray, or not everything we've prayed probably, uh, falls into the category of true prayer. Okay? Listen to what he says. It is cheerfully conceded that adoration of God, communion with Him, and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies tend, even apart from petition and positive blessings, to produce a solitary effect upon the soul. What he says is, yes, praying does produce an effect. It, this is true, he says. But the Scriptures represent prayer as accomplishing a great deal more than this. They attribute to it an actual influence in bringing to bear upon us, both in our spiritual and temporal conditions, powers and energies which are not only not inherent in us, but absolutely extraneous to us. Now what he means by that is, there is something supernatural in prayer. That's what he's saying. He says, and when we pray in the right manner and in the right fervor, in the right heart, there are supernatural energies that come into play in our lives. Guess what? This excites godliness. It excites character. It excites the means of grace. It excites all of those things that God loves. That's what he's saying. None of those things remain passive. Okay? Listen to what he goes on to say. In a word... He goes, let me say it this way. The doctrine of the Scriptures clearly is that true prayer is efficacious, that means powerful, in securing God's interposition on our behalf. He says, no, when we come and pray rightly, guess what? God powerfully moves on our behalf. I hope you're encouraged. Because you know what he's saying? You come and pray in the right way and with the right heart, guess what? God's going to move heaven and earth for you. That's what he's saying. Let's go on. He says, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man's of a righteous man avails to the accomplishment of the result. What did Elijah pray? Not to rain. What happened? It did not rain. He prayed for it to rain. What happened? It rained. It has power to prevail with God. It not only brings us near to Him, it brings God near to us. That is, we're praying His will and His Word. We're praying for the things that God delights over and with. It lays hold of divine strength. It obtains divine help and supplies the wants of the soul and the body from the fullness of divine resources. What he's saying is this. Look, when Elijah prayed and he and he prayed for the rain to cease. What did God do during that time? God upheld Elijah to keep praying it, even though he was living in a land that was dried up. I will sustain you. And that, I be, you don't get it. He prays for the rain to stop, and God comes near to him and says, Elijah, I'm going to provide a spring of water for you in the desert, and I'm going to give you drink, and I'm going to feed you with crows. I'm going to take care of you. He sustained him. He drew near to Elijah, and Elijah drew near to him, even though he prayed a very hard prayer. 
what do we see here? We see that effectual prayer is that, that prayer that calls upon God's divine assistance. It's powerful. God, come into my life. And to ask God to come into your life is to ask for power. How can you ask God to come into your life and not get all that God is? How can you do that? See, listen, let's be, let's, let's be realistic. We love a God we control. We don't control God. We say, God, come into my life. Do what you will. Do, do what you will. Move. Shape me. Mold me. Make me who you want me to be. All right, Lord, I, okay, you can have these five things, these three things. No, they're mine. No, we don't do that. That's not calling God to come near. Brothers and sisters, God hears our prayers when we pray from that disposition of submission. If you could sum up saving faith in one word, I would encourage you to use this one. Submission. What does saving faith do? When you you say, do I have saving faith or historical faith? What's a historical faith? Historical faith is like believing that Jesus existed. Okay. He's one of many prophets. Okay. Muslims believe Jesus existed. But He's not a Savior. A lot of Christians believe in Jesus really lived and all of this and He was a great teacher and He was a moral man and blah, blah, blah. And He was probably God and all of these things. But they don't trust Him. And it's like, oh, yeah, I believe Jesus existed. What? That's not a Christian. You don't have, look, just because you believe Jesus existed doesn't make you a Christian. You have to trust and rest in Jesus for your salvation. You have to give it all by faith. And you do that by the working of the Spirit in you to say, here it is, Lord. I submit. I submit. And not only do we submit to God when our faith is put into Him, something He gives us to put into Him, but we live our lives in submission to Him. Obviously not perfectly, do we? And we have to come back. We have to come back, keep coming back. Hear the sermons. Exercise the means of grace. Because what? These are the things God's using in our lives to keep salvation fresh and passionate and real, right? Psalm 65 and verse 2 says, O thou hearest prayer. The psalmist calls upon God as the God who hears the prayer of the righteous. He says, because thou art ready to grant our petitions. Why is God ready to hear? Because He wants to answer our prayers. He desires to do so. Listen to what Matthew Henry said. He says, O thou hearest prayer, thou can answer every prayer. For thou art able to do so more than we are able to ask or even think. Ephesians 3.20, which is that doxology Paul used to say, Oh, our God is so glorious, He far exceeds our imagination. You know what that means? Well, that God also far exceeds His imagination how He cares for us. Listen, I promise you, God cares for you and me way more than we think He does. Now that is not to bring in some softness to our lives. I mean, we got plenty of softness. It's to bring in the truth. God cares for His people way more than we can imagine. And when we don't exercise this means of grace with our faith, 
What are we saying about that? Listen to what Matthew Henry goes on to say. He says, Thou will answer every prayer of faith, either in kind or kindness. It is much for the glory of God's goodness and the encouragement of ours that He is a God who hears prayer and has taken it among the titles of His honor to be so. What does He mean by that? He says, God calls Himself the hearer of prayer. I'm the one that hears your prayers. Because of that reason, we are to run to Him, He says. When we are in dire straits, therefore, because Thou art a God who hears prayer, that the whole earth, all flesh shall come to Thee. Justly does every man's praise wait for Thee, because every man's prayer waits on Thee when he is in want or distress. When do we usually pray? When do we usually pray? When we're in distress. When we're hurt. When we want something. But God does not owe anyone an answer to their prayers. He doesn't owe it. He desires to do it. That, that, is, it, it's, that is, in one sense, God has covenanted with us to answer our prayers. True. In Christ. Why would He want to do that? Because He'd want us to pray. Who would pray? Listen, how weak is our prayer life when we have all the promises of answering our prayers? Imagine if you didn't have the promise of answering prayers. Would you ever pray at all? Probably not. But see, God attaches to the commandment to pray promises. And the promise is that I will bless you with what you ask for as long as you ask in my name. But God doesn't answer all men's prayers. And nor does He have to. He's not obligated to answer those who do not love Him or trust in Him or, or follow Him or worship Him. Look at Proverbs fifteen eight with me. Proverbs fifteen eight. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. And the prayer of the upright is acceptable to Him. Now remember when you're dealing with poetry, there's, a, there's a symmetry here. and it says, The sacrifice of the wicked is equivalent to the prayers of the righteous. Sacrifice of prayer. That's what Paul uses in the New Testament. He calls prayer spiritual sacrifice. Now, where did Paul get that? He didn't make it up. He got it right out of the Old Testament. He was right here, the sacrifice of the wicked. That is, when, when we pray, it is, in this sense, it is in this sense of worshiping God into upholding to Him these uh, desires, uh, these petitions, these praises, and these thanksgivings. He says that the wicked, who are the wicked? Those who are not of faith. Those who are not of faith. Those who are not walking with God. Those who are not trusting God for their salvation. Those who are not obedient to His Word. He says their prayers is an abomination. Their worship is an abomination to the Lord. Uh, Proverbs 15, 29. The Lord is far from the wicked, but He hears the prayer 
of the righteous. Now, what does the Bible, I mean, what does the Word of God teach us? He's far, what does it mean to be far away? Now, now God's not locally, not local to, in geography. He's a spirit. God is everywhere at all times. He's a spirit. He doesn't have a body like we do. He's not localized in the sense of being in Macon or Atlanta or anywhere else. But obviously, the text, the verse, points out something. He's not close to. He's not intimate with. He's not communing. To be far away from somebody is not to be communing with them. It's not to be communicating with them. It's not to be fellowshipping with them. That's what he's saying. The Lord doesn't do any of those things with the wicked. None of those things. But look, he hears the prayer of the righteous. Again, notice the closeness. The intimacy is he hears us when we pray. Let's look at one more. Proverbs 28 and verse 9. If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. That is, listen, if you're not going to walk by the Word of God, if you're not going to walk by the rule of life by which God has given to us, prescribed for our what? His glory and our happiness. Remember, that's the whole point. That is, there's, there, it is an inescapable connection. To glorify God is to bring about your good. To glorify God because He is so glorious and awesome and, and majestic in all His being and character and person, you cannot be touched negatively by coming close to that. You got me? You draw near to God and you glorify Him and you worship Him and the, the fruit and the result is going to be your happiness. That's what it's going to be. And that's what verse, Proverbs 28 verse 9 says. If one turns away his ear, he's not interested in what God has to say. He's not interested in how to live. He's not interested in how to have a family. He's not interested in worship. He's not interested in all of these things. Look, even his prayer is an abomination. Matthew Henry says this. He said, God sets himself at a distance from those that set him at defiance. I mean, if they hate God, why should God answer their prayer? If they don't enjoy Him, they don't want Him, they don't desire communion and fellowship with Him, they don't desire to be close to Him, why would it be foolish for God to give them something they don't want? They don't want fellowship with Him. So He doesn't answer their prayer. We should never use prayer just... We should never use prayer simply to excite our religion. Prayer does that. But that's not simply the point of prayer. We should use prayer in the context of the truth. Let me give you an example of what I mean. How did Elijah from the text use prayer? The nation of Israel was apostatizing. They were going after foreign gods. They were worshiping the gods of the day. So he calls upon God in the context of that environment to move in a way that would bring God ultimate glory. It had a context to it. 
He wasn't trying to exalt himself. He wasn't trying to say, see, I'm more powerful than you. I'm better than you. It wasn't any of those things. He's like, Lord, they're worshiping idols. You alone are the true and living God. And so he prayed that way. How did Noah pray? Well, you have to put yourself in the context of, of, of wickedness and apostasy in his day. Obviously, you would see Noah praying for persevering grace. Lord, preserve my family in this day age of apostasy. Keep us close to Thee. How would He be close to Thee? Drawing near to God, the means of grace, prayer, all of these things that God had instituted and prescribed to partake of to keep them close and in fellowship with Him. So we see... Even David, how does David pray? David always prays in connection to the glory of God and the benefit of his people. Always. Now listen to these and think about them. I'm just going to read a list of verses and you see these and we'll move on. He says, Proverbs 1.28 says, When they call upon me, these are the people who have, who have snubbed their nose at God's word. When they call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Now you say, wait a minute. There's another verse in the scriptures that we'll look at later that says, all who seek me find me. Well, there can't be a contradiction. So what do you think the, the proverbial writer, what do you think Solomon had in mind? They seek him, but with all the wrong intentions. They have all the trappings of seeking God, like the Pharisees. Did the Pharisees find God? Pharisees made up worship, made up laws and rules and traditions so that they could have their own way. And all. Was they worshiping God? Jesus said no. He said no. In fact, you're whitewashed tombs is what you are. And in fact, he says, not only do you block the kingdom of God off from others, you don't go in yourself. No, I mean, you don't go in yourself. See, that's what God thinks about it. He says, oh, they have all the trappings of seeking that, but they don't really want me. Proverbs 8, 17, I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently find me. Isaiah 45, 19, I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. And I, the Lord, speak the truth and I declare what is right. What is he saying here? He says, listen, I have not hidden myself in the dark. I'm wide open. I'm right here. You want me? Come get me. If you want to be saved, guess what? Come and get it. It's free. It won't cost you a dime. But it will cost you your life. It cost you nothing. But you will have to live for me. You can't live for yourself and for Molech and for the gods of the day and then expect the blessings of the one true and living God. Isaiah 58.2 Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about those people that didn't have all the ceremonial laws. They want me. What does God do in Christ when Christ comes into the world and He's raised up, He's offered up Himself on the cross, He's raised from the dead, and He ascends into heaven? What does He send out His disciples to do? All authority, right? Matthew 28. 
All authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. Therefore, go into all the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. He sends them out. What does he want to do? He wants to teach the whole world how to glorify God and be happy. Jeremiah 29, 13. This will be our last verse for now. It says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. <laughs> That's a promise. I want to end this morning. Let's, let's just stop there and ponder a few things quickly and we'll pick up next week. We've seen... Who should pray? The righteous. And we've seen what manner of prayer the righteous ought to pray. Fervently, passionately, consistently, in faith. Believing and trusting that God wants to glorify His name. And, and, and all for the glory of God. And, you know, I love what one theologian said because, see... What we're going to gravitate to, we're going to gravitate to, yeah, but you know what? I, I, don't, I don't think we can say God answers all our prayers. Well, that's exactly what the Bible says. John 15. John 15 and verse 7. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. That's a promise. As we abide with Christ, communing, fellowship, intimacy, as that Communion and fellowship is fostered by the Word of God, enlightening our minds, teaching us, instructing us, educating us. And as the Word teaches us what to pray for, what to ask for, how does God want to be glorified? How, how, how does God want us to live? Directing our prayers. You know what Jesus says? When you pray, when you seek me rightly, according to my Word, Father's going to answer it. See, here's what the theologian says. He said, it would be an absurdity for us to pray and only thinking that God would answer a small percentage of our prayers. He said, that would be absurd. And you know what? I never thought about it until I read it. But he's right. How many of you will practice anything if there's only going to be a yield of a few percentage points. Well, you know, we might hit, hit or miss 30%, get 30% of our prayers answered. If that's what you think, guess what? You're not praying because you don't see a yield in it. You don't see a result in it. You don't really think God cares enough. You're not going to say God doesn't care. He sent forth His Son. But you'd say, well, I think He has bigger Bigger things to do than answer my prayers, my little prayers. Did not our Lord teach us on the Sermon on the Mount? What son goes and asks his father for a fish? 
and that father gave him a snake. Your heavenly father doesn't do that. Your heavenly father gives you the things that you need. The things that you want in, in, in light of his kingdom. Close with this. The Lord's Prayer is a model for us, is it not? Of what to pray for. Let's pray for these things. If we pray for God to hallow His name, to sanctify His name, to, to honor His name, to set apart His name among ourselves and men, do you think God's going to answer that? You think God's going to answer? Does God want to honor His name? Does God want His glory to fill the earth? Does He want righteousness to cover the land as, as far as the waters covered the sea? Does God, I mean, why did God raise Jesus from the dead and sit Him at His right hand and give Him all authority and power and send out His officers to preach the gospel, call men to repentance, to be baptized in the triune God's name and to teach them how to live? Why do you think He did that? So that the earth would be filled with His his glorious name. Secondly, pray for thy kingdom come to be done on earth as it is in heaven, not only in us, but around us, that all men everywhere would be worshipers and doers for the living God. <laughs> Thirdly, give us our daily bread. What do we pray for? Not necessarily steak, bread. That means we pray for the, work, the Lord to bless our work of our hands. Lord, make me productive today. Well, how can I be productive if I sleep till 3 o'clock? No, I'm just saying, you know, when we pray, remember the power that comes with it. That is, we have to, if I pray for the Lord to bless the work of my hands, I need to show up to work. I need to be, have a good attitude when I work. I need to have the appropriate skill level to do the work, and I need to do the work. And guess what the Lord will do? He blesses the fruit of our hands. And we got all this, this passive, faithless praying for the Lord to do something that we don't even expect the Lord to do. Lord, give me, give me all these things, but yet there are means attached to all of them. Forgiveness of sin. We pray and ask God to forgive us and pardon us of our sins, to cleanse our conscience, to grant us that intimacy and favor. When we pray and ask God for forgiveness, brothers and sisters, are we drawing close to Him? If we're not drawing close to Him, utilizing the study of the Word and the means of grace, guess what? We don't mean it. We don't mean it. Lord, forgive me of my sins. Why is intimacy connected with forgiveness? What's one thing that separates men and God? What's the one thing? Sin. Sin. Sin is an interruption of intimacy and communion with God. And where there is sin, there is a lack and fractured and an injured communion and friendship with God. And when we pray for forgiveness, then we draw near to Him. The forgiveness is to bring favor and peace with God. Fifthly, temptation. Pray that God, who is the God of providence and all power, would keep us from being in situations and circumstances where we are tempted. But what happens if God allows us, like Job, to be tempted? Then we pray, oh Lord, sustain us. Don't let us fall too far.
Because ultimately, what I want is you. I long for you. See, a righteous man, I say, faith can, can be summed up in one word. What's the word? Submission. Righteousness. A righteous person can be described as longing for God more than anything else. It's a righteousness that longs for communion and fellowship and intimacy with God above everything else. That's the person that gets his prayers answered. We'll look more at that next week. Let's pray.